Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. SI's Brian Strauss is on his first vacation in two years, so we have two episodes of interviews this week. Today, as part of my series of interviews with the candidates for U.S. Soccer President, I'm joined by Carlos Cordero, the current Vice President of U.S. Soccer. We talk about a variety of topics, including his efforts to show that he can be a candidate for change, even though he has been on the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors since 2007. That encapsulates the challenge I've got, is to convince our members that I do represent change. And for that, I would again remind you that I came in in 2007 as an independent director. It's very important to understand what that means. You have to be an outsider to be an independent director. You can't be independent if you're an insider. So to say I'm an insider is factually wrong. All that and more coming up. Joining me now is Carlos Cordero, who is running for U.S. Soccer President in an election that is this Saturday, February 10th, in Orlando. Cordero is the Vice President of U.S. Soccer and has been on the Federation's Board of Directors for 11 years. He is a former executive with Goldman Sachs. Carlos, thank you for joining me. Hello, Grant. Good to be with you this afternoon on on your podcast. Uh, I know it's been challenging to say the least to get us together schedule wise but it's uh, it's it's been an exhilarating 24 7 campaign literally from day one four months ago and but i look i think it's important we 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 got together and uh talked before the election on saturday so thank you very much for for the opportunity well i appreciate you taking the time i'm under the uh, understanding that this is your first podcast ever. So it's a historic moment. Thanks, Carlos. <laughs> yes. Um, I want to start just by asking a question that I've been asking to basically everybody I've interviewed on this podcast who's running for this position. Why do you think you're qualified to be the president of U.S. soccer? Well, granted, you know, it's I, I'm running because I think I've got the experience. I have the uh, independence. I've got a vision. Um, I've got a very detailed plan to hit the ground running on day one and, and actually deliver uh, the, the, the change we need. Um, I, I've consistently said um, that we need a president with experience. Um, you're absolutely right. I've, for eight years, I was an independent director. Uh, what does that mean? It means an outsider giving independent, impartial advice to the board. Uh, as vice president for the last couple of years, I've been heavily focused on reforming our governance, get, getting our board uh, uh, more engaged. Over the years, I've served as treasurer. I've chaired the finance committee. I, I believe I have a, a deep, deep understanding of how the federation functions, it works, the culture, the people. Um, I, I, I've also felt, I also feel, I should say, I, I think we need a president who's independent with no conflicts of interest. Um, those of you who know me well, know, know that I'm fiercely independent and I've, I'm committed to serving all our members fairly uh, and, and, and with integrity. Um, I've talked about a president who needs, who needs vision. Um, where, where, where does soccer need to go? Um, and in the decade ahead, um, I, I think, Grant, we have a really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make soccer the preeminent sport uh, in, in America. It's been hovering at four or five now for a generation, and I, I, th- I think we can get it to one or two within the next 10 to 15 years. I think the demographics favor soccer. Soccer is the world. Football, I should say, is the world sport. Uh, we have a lot of unique things happening in this country right now, 
And when we talk about my detailed plan, the most important, the most important thing um, that, that the next president will have to do on the 11th of February will be to go out there and champion our win, uh, sorry, our bid to win the World co-host the uh, the Men's World Cup in 26. And, and, and I've also talked about advancing the case for hosting our women in 27. But what, why is this so important? Because hosting and frankly in 26 and, and will be a catalyst. It will transform the game here. Um, generate hundreds of millions of dollars for the sport. Uh, it will re-energize our grassroots uh, grant like nothing ever before. I mean, you have to go back to 1988 for that to have happened last. And so I, I think um, um, th- that is you, that is very important. So you, you, I think you need the experience. You need someone with independence uh, to bring about the change uh, that the Federation needs. And then you need a plan. You need a vision and a plan. And I think I'm unique amongst the candidates. Uh, obviously, I've been on the Federation board. You referred to that. Uh, I'm on the United Bid Committee board. This is the entity that is promoting our joint bid effort uh, with FIFA. Uh, I'm on the governing council of CONCACAF. That's the highest elected body of CONCACAF. And I'm on the FIFA's, uh, FIFA's stakeholders committee. And this is the committee that oversees and engages with all its stakeholders, players, clubs, leagues, and national associations around the world. So I, I believe I, I bring a lot to the party and, and I'm running for president. Yeah. I, before we get into more uh, specific campaign questions, I want to back up just a little bit. You have a pretty incredible life story, and I was wondering if you could share a little bit about it. Sure. I, 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 look, I, as football or soccer comes, I've, I've been a fan, Grant, since really I was a little kid. My, my um, How can you not, right? With a Colombian mother and a, and a father of Portuguese descent, Portuguese Indian descent, um, you know, soccer has been sort of the one common thread. Uh, we, we, my, I was, uh, unfortunately, my father passed away in a car accident when I was uh, quite young, and my mother and uh, my three siblings and I, we immigrated to, to Miami um, uh, when I was a boy of uh, 15 years old. And, uh, you know, Amer- America has given me uh, everything I've had. Uh, we came with nothing, and I'm, I'm, you know, deeply humbled by the opportunities educationally, professionally, uh, and, now, and now to engage, with, engage in soccer. Um, so I, I, I'm, I, I, I am an American in, in every respect. I'm a, I'm a naturalized American and, and proud to be that. And so you were born where exactly? So I, I was born in the city of Bombay. My father's family actually hailed from a coastal state called Goa. It's, it was Portuguese at the time of my birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a, a Colombian and a Portuguese citizen at birth um, in, until 1961 when Portugal uh, stepped out and, and gave the states to India. And when we immigrated to the United States, I, I, we, we came on Colombian passports and some 10 years later, you know, with green cards and the like, um, I became a citizen. And, and I read, there's a good story by Michelle Kaufman recently in the Miami Herald about you. You and all of your siblings got into Harvard? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I have to scratch my head and ask myself, how did that happen? But we were fortunate. We had a terrific education at a public high school, Miami Beach High School here in Florida, South Florida. Um, and... Uh, you know, listen, I mean, as I said, America has given us what we have through a combination of scholarships and work study. At one point, I had three jobs whilst I was at Harvard, you know, got through got through college, got into business school. And, and you know, and I've had a have had a successful career over 35 years in 
uh, finance and, and in the corporate world. But uh, yeah, my, my two brothers and my sister all followed me, and uh, e- you know, with equally uh, equal stories, similar stories, you know, wow. s- scholarships and, and work stuff. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Well, in terms of this campaign for the U.S. soccer president, if you had a big idea behind your presidency, what would you say it is? Well, look, so in terms of immediate priorities, because people keep asking, what would you do in the first 90 days? I mean, let, let there be no uncertainty that winning the World Cup bid is of the highest and should be of the highest priority grant for any, any one of us, seven or eight, who, went, you know, who is president. Uh, the ramifications, the consequences uh, for the sport are just uh, impossible to, you know, to, to write down. I think, I think the, it'll re-energize the grassroots like nothing else. It will bring a lot of focus and, and, and attention, uh, the social media world, parents, schools, universities. It, it, it will be dramatic overnight. And I, I think the Federation will be a, the singular uh, beneficiary of a lot of corporate largesse. I think we, I'd expect there to see a significant, significant uptick in our sponsorship levels. Uh, and I don't mean having to wait till 2022 when the next contract comes up for renewal. I think almost immediately. And I think as goes that, as we are able to build our financial resources, we will then be able to address what I believe is the most significant long-term initiative that the Federation has to undertake, and that's basically uh, fixing the, the problem with the grassroots at the youth level. I've traveled the country back and forth multiple times in the last four months. I've met with virtually every state, uh, if not in situ, then in Phoenix at, at an ODP event, or in Philly at the convention, uh, out in California, and so on. And, and I tell you, whilst uh, every state has its issues, uh, big and small, and uh, you know, uh, uh, rural states and, and, and more city-like states, um, there's one common theme that comes through all of that, which is the grassroots is broken. And it is, um, an inter- I mean, it, it is to me uh, uh, unacceptable that in a dynamic country such as ours, 325 million people growing, one of the highest growth rates amongst the, the developed, the OECD world, that our grass, or sorry, our, our youth uh, membership has been stagnant for 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, and some would argue that it's actually gone down because there's a lot of double counting as between the, the USYS states and some of the other entities. But whether it's 3 million or 3.5 million, that, it's been that level grant for a long time. Now, that's not to say that more kids aren't playing soccer. Yes, they are playing soccer, but they're playing outside the umbrella of US soccer. This is what I call the unaffiliated clubs and leagues. And there are millions of kids playing outside U.S. soccer. So we're not capturing them. And that, that to me, is a travesty. We have to fix that. Why might that have happened? Well, you know, part of it is, part of it is um, you know, the insularity of our approach. Part of it is the affordability. You know, it's expensive for, for uh, many families to, to spend thousands of dollars putting each child. Imagine if you have multiple children. I couldn't have afforded to play you know, as, 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 a, as a 15-year-old here, if I, if I had been good enough, it would have been impossible for my mother to pay for, you know, what, what it costs now to put, to put a kid through a, a, a soccer academy. And so we, we have to fix that because it's like almost having our hands tied behind our backs and trying to feel the national team that's going to compete globally with, you know, looking at 25% of our population. You, you can't rule out that other 75, you know. So for every, look, every other sport that this country has chosen to 
uh, pursue, and I, swimming, you know, gymnastics, basketball, you name the sport, track and field. We have world-class athletes. We have our, more than our fair share of uh, World Cup and, uh, and, and, and Olympic medals. But we, don't, we haven't done that except for our women, for, for reasons that are unique to our women. We haven't done that in soccer. And I think that is because we're not capturing the full potential of our youth population. So we have to fix the grassroots. To me, that's the most imperative strategic initiative, which we will fix, particularly if we have this great opportunity over the next decade to celebrate two World Cups in 26-27 on our home turf. I think that changes the whole the whole uh, dynamic. Well, there's been a lot of talk recently about the U.S. losing Jonathan Gonzalez to Mexico. But to me, the bigger topic is what can U.S. soccer do more of to connect with the Latino and minority communities in this country? And I think that's connected to some of what you were just saying. But more specific to the Latino and minority communities in this country, how, how do you actually go about doing that, making that connection? So you're right. Um, I won't speak to to his case because I'm not as familiar with it probably as you are. But but look, the cost of play is exorbitant, and and depends obviously on what community you live in. But but you know we we have just, we have chosen over the last decade basically to develop one pathway for our elite players, which is, which are these academies. And as that has happened, basically most other pathways have either atrophied or have been starved of oxygen. You know they've lost staff and coaches. And so the ODP program, which every state had and once upon a time now is, is, is basically a, you know, um, a skeleton of what it was. And perhaps I'm exaggerating a bit, but, you know, it, it's, it's more re- relevant in those states, you know, where there, are no, where there are no academies, that they only ever had the ODP program. Those kids don't get scouted. There are not enough scouts in the system to go to little states like Kentucky or Arkansas. I was there last week, you know. So those kids get, no, talk about Hawaii, you know, those kids have to fly thousands of miles, get into a program at whose expense, you know. So it is a legitimate concern that the the diversity of this country, one of our great strengths is our diversity, geographically, ethnically. You know, we we have a, a, uh, a significant advantage relative to almost any nation on earth, but we're not using that advantage to our advantage. And, and, and so we have to figure out a way, as I said, to basically bring the costs down. So specifically, what does that mean? For example, you know, cost of coaching. We don't have enough coaches. goes without saying. More coaches you have, you know, the, the, more, the more kids that we can put through the system. Why don't we have enough coaches? Well, partly because getting a coaching license in this country is still very expensive. You know, why does it cost us? Four or five thousand dollars to get an A license in the in the U.S. When in Germany it costs six hundred euro. So even adjusting for currencies, you know, you're talking about seven, eight times the cost in the United States. And why is that? That's not because our education system is more expensive. It's because the Germans subsidize those licenses more heavily. So where where what I think we need to do is we need to significantly expand our coaching base. And I've talked to lots of more more experienced people than, than, than myself for certain on this issue. We, we need to bring in more coaches, but we need to make it easier for these coaches to get licensed and trained. And, and that immediately then, you know, uh, I think will, will, will help address some of the problem and some of the cost issues uh, that the kids have to pay for. Because if the licenses are prepaid or, or heavily subsidized by us, 
then you have an agreement with that coach that he has to basically give back to a particular state, you know, for a certain, it's like the old ROTC program. You know, we educate you, you give back. We do that often enough. We're going to create a whole class of coaches, you know, that we will have educated essentially for free. And then they'll be giving back to us. That then expands the, the opportunity for the kids. Obviously we need more, grants and scholarships you know i was in i, I just mentioned i was in uh, well i think i mentioned i was in Ar- uh, arkansas then i went to kentucky last week and in the little town of bowling green i i had a lunch with the um the president of the kentucky youth federation and he brought along half a dozen coaches and a couple team a couple state officials and he brought two pl- young players with him two 14 year old boys both hispanic who told me their story. You know, one was the, the son of uh, textile workers in Bowling Green, and the other one's father was a truck driver. Neither of them could possibly have imagined, could, could have afforded what it cost to put them through the ODP program. So in that particular case, the state, the president and his staff, you know, figured out a way to provide these kids with the scholarships. And the, these, two, these two young boys will end up being on the national ODP program. But that's, that is the extent of the opportunity. There, there are probably thousands more uh, young boys or young men, as as those two are, and we have to find ways. Cost should not be the the determining factors to whether or not these kids play. And by the way, Grant, as goes the health of our youth program, so go, will go our national teams. I'm, I'm firmly convinced of the connect, connectivity, and and to me, it's it's a virtuous circle. If we can if we can raise the level of our youth programs, put better kids through the system, we're going to get better output. But we can't rely on one pathway. We need multiple pathways to accommodate the geography, to accommodate, you know, every state has its unique issues. And, and it cannot just be academy programs. We absolutely have to find multiple pathways and make sure they're all equally funded. U.S. soccer has a surplus of around $150 million right now. How do you think that surplus should be spent? I, I still am chairman of the finance committee. I had that uh, role prior to being vice president, and I'm I continue in that role. So I'm obviously very familiar with um, uh, the Federation's finances. Yes, we, we are the lucky recipients of a significant reserve of about $150 million. Uh, about half of that is attributable to one event. That was Copa America, which you know, you, you'd be familiar with from 2016. Uh, uh, the reality is, when you look at a four-year forward plan, on where the where the uh, federation is basically making its investments over the next four years, that reserve will rapidly fall to about fifty million dollars by the year 2022. This is assuming again it assumes that our revenues stay flat at roughly 95 to 100 million dollars. We know that because our contracts are long term, and we're guaranteed. Most, most of that money is locked into long-term contracts, so we kind of anticipate that we're, we're, we're going to get $100 million a year. But by gradually increasing our expenditures, this year we're at $110 million. This is the budget that goes to the council next weekend. Um, and my guessing is next year it will be at 125 or 135 and then it goes on from there. And when you look at those additional expenditures against our flat revenue line, basically the reserves come down. So we're deficit spending, the reserves come down, and I would venture to say that $50 million for a business or, or an operation of this size and complexity is about the right level of reserves. So our reserves are largely spoken for. You might ask, where is that money going? Well, it's going into coaching education. Mm-hmm. It's going into growing the referee program. 
It's going into player development initiatives. It's going to high performance, um, very, very uh, scientific uh, ways of measuring elite players. Um, and, and, on, and, and for our youth national teams and our senior national teams. So all of that money, the additional money that we're, we're spending over and above where, where, where we were at a year ago, where we're at this year and so on, is going into these established programs. And these are, these are all investments that we're monitoring, we're holding people accountable. So this is not you know, throwing money out the window. These are all uh, carefully thought through uh, program expenditures. But away from that, we don't have a national training center in this country, right? Yeah. We, 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 we don't, we, we, we haven't, I, I just talked about what we need to do in the grassroots. Well, to fix the grassroots problem and bring in more uh, scholarships and grants and bring the, bring the co- cost of coaching licenses down, that costs financial, that, that, that uh, requires um, uh, additional reserves. So I, I would venture to say that it's not what so much, what are we going to do with 150 million? That's already been your mark. It is how can we grow our budget to a level at which we can be competitive with the best nations on earth? Look at, look at England. England is spending right now, Grant, the equivalent of $500 million per annum. Germany is higher than that. Italy, Spain, France, to name three countries that are smaller than us population-wise, smaller than us economically, GDP per capita, whatever metric you want to use, they're spending two to $300 million in today's, uh, today's exchange rates. We're, we're at 110. That is why, you know, uh, we absolutely need to drive the financial side of this budget. For those candidates who think we have too much of money, I'm sorry, I, I hate to disagree. We, we, we are just doing okay for now. We need to significantly increase our capability, our ability to fund the programs we need to fund. And if we don't have those financial uh, resources, it's going, to be, it's going to be hard for me to see us basically making more affordable for kids who, you know, from underserved, underserved, I should say, and immigrant communities. And, and that is what we have to do. So I, I am very focused on good governance. Why? Because if we don't get the governance piece right, we won't have a strong base. We won't have a strong federation to grow it financially. And if we grow it financially, we'll have the resources to put back into the grassroots. And that's the circle I want people to think about. And, and that is all about winning national and international and World Cup uh, tournaments. One of the important things that the new president will have to be involved with this year is hiring a new coach for the U.S. men's national team. What is the process under which you think national team coaches should be hired by? Right. So, you know, that, that's been a recurring question for the entire campaign. And I, I know that some of the candidates have made that a signature question or signature campaign issue. I, I felt uh, very strongly all along, and I've been a big supporter of separating what I would call the soccer operations from the other side of the administration of U.S. soccer. U.S. soccer is, for better or worse, it is a large, complex business, right? We're, we're dealing with, Grant, on the one hand, we, we have an antitrust uh, issue pending in New York. We've got a member who's taken us to the court of arbitration. We're about to begin negotiations with our men's national team uh, on a CBA agreement for the, for the next four years, similar to what we just you know, completed with our women a year ago. Uh, we're, we're, we're dealing with budgetary issues. We're dealing with FIFA and CONCACAF, Canada and Mexico on, on, a, on, a, you know, uh, on the World Cup bid, the joint bid. I mean, the president has to be abreast of all of these issues. 
but also be on top of things like, you know, coaching. But the president should not be uh, the only person or the point person for interviewing and negotiating contracts or terminating contracts for that matter, as it has been in the past. I, I feel very strongly about that. And that is why uh, I had proposed at the start of my campaign, and it's something that actually that the board uh, is, is, has been talking about, and we're at a, at a point now, I think, where, where we're pretty much in agreement on, a, on appointing two general managers. Uh, and I, I use the word general manager, maybe for, for your audience, it's, think of them like athletic directors. Mm -hmm. An athletic director, not the university president, but an AD is more the point person day to day for overseeing all coaching appointments. So we would have these two general managers, one for a men's team and one for a women's teams in plural. They would form sort of the leadership of a technical department at Soccer House in Chicago. And underneath them, would they have broad oversight for everything. What style of soccer we play, uh, coaching education is, issues, uh, PDIs for different age groups, uh, all the performance stuff, this counting, all of that comes together um, as, you know, in, in sort of that one area of what I call soccer operations. And by the way, they would also be responsible for youth national team appointments and ultimately the senior team appointments, meaning the coaches. And so it should be that, you know, there should be a career path for our coaches. So our youth national team folks have an opportunity at some point to challenge for more senior positions. That's true. How, that's how most other countries manage it. There's a succession line, you know, for coaching. It shouldn't be that a coach comes and a coach goes and everything is thrown into paralysis, um, where the coach should not also be the technical director. So I think the, these general managers of, of, our, of our soccer operations will be much more long-term career-oriented oriented people. They'd be soccer experts. They could well have been players. They could have been a coach in time. They might have gone to school and come back, but they'd be well-versed in soccer and they would be the, the, in the, the best position you know, to identify coaches for our various teams. Now, you might have on very important assignments, perhaps like our next uh, uh, men's national team coach, you might put a search committee out. And you might bring some people in from the outside, like, you know, prominent players, many of whom would volunteer for this overnight, you know, but sort of a one-time ad hoc committee to advise uh, uh, the general manager on, you know, a short list of candidates, maybe conduct interviews. And eventually those, uh, the one or two top candidates would obviously be looked at and be seen by the chief executive to whom the general managers report. So we have a chief executive in Chicago, who's Dan Flynn, and underneath Dan are several directors responsible for different functions of, of soccer, legal, finance, human resources. And here we have two general managers or two directors responsible for soccer operations. The president and the board sit above all of that. And obviously the oversight comes from us. We will get engaged at the last minute. We will be aware of who the candidates are. And ultimately we should and would accept the recommendations made to us by the chief executive who would be relying on his two general managers. That to me is a professional way, long-term sustainable way for going about hiring uh, uh, coaches. For many years, Carlos, you were seen as outgoing Federation president Sunil Gulati's right-hand man in the Federation. Clearly, there has been some tension between you and Gulati over your decision to run in this election before Gulati had decided not to run. When you look at Gulati's leadership style over the past decade, you were on the board. Do you think he has been too autocratic 
in his decision-making as U.S. soccer president? Yeah, I, look, I, I don't know if that's the right uh, adjective, Grant. I mean, I, I look back, I, I've only obviously had the, the honor of serving uh, as an independent, again, as an outsider who has been an independent director under uh, Sunil's uh, presidency. I did not have the, the pleasure of uh, working for Dr. Bob or Alan Rothenberg before him. But I, I would say, I would make the following comment. I think over the years, U.S. soccer as a federation has enjoyed very strong leaders, good leaders for their time. And because you're good in one era, one, one decade, doesn't mean you can be good in another decade. I think every, every passing, uh, every decade or every so often, you know, requires a different type of leadership. What I like to think I bring to the party is uh, a spirit of collaboration. I am it's in my DNA. I, I don't know how to work other than uh, to collaborating with people. I, I like to work with them on consensus. I, I like to build. Um, um, uh, I like to build consensus. You work with teams, uh, and, and let's just say that I'm different in that regard. And I, and I think it's very important to me or for people to understand that this is way too comprehensive, too complex uh, uh, a, a federation for one person to do everything. And, and you might have been able to do that 10 years ago. You cannot do that today. And so we, we, have, we have a great board of directors, but they have to be engaged. Um, and it's more than just coming to meetings every quarter. So that's why I've been at the forefront of advocating. And, and, and Frank, frankly, what have I done as vice president? You know, without a portfolio or a job description, I have pushed aggressively for these board committees to be established and for these board committees to, to get them directly engaged. So we now have a risk management audit and compliance function in one committee. So think, of those, think of those overlapping issues. So now directors on that committee are deeply engaged on things like sexual harassment policies, you know, compliance management, managing the risks of the Federation reputationally overall, and of course the audit. We have another committee that basically you know, that I run is oversees the finance, but it's not so much about a one-year budget, it's a four-year a four forward-looking plan. The directors have never been engaged to that degree. And more, the more the directors are engaged, the more, I think, uh, uh, the, the decisions we make uh, will be better because of being better informed. And, and we can hold people in Soccer House or at Soccer House um, more accountable for what they're doing. Otherwise, you know, we're too in disengaged to be able to really uh, uh, to know what's going on and be able to follow everything. So I, I come back to it, is, is you have to be collaborative. You have to be much more inclusive in today's day and age. It was not as much a requirement maybe 10 or 20 years ago. And I, I think we have good people on the board. They all represent membership or members, the youth, the adults, and the athletes. But, you know, if they're not engaged, you know, they don't serve any purpose. So I, I am very different. I do believe that, you know, with, with, with a, a more engaged board, we will get better results. And that's the type of presidency we need over the next 10 years. A lot of folks after the U.S. men failed to qualify for the World Cup have said that they want change in U.S. soccer how do you, given what you've been doing over the last decade, how do you balance that notion that you've been an insider on the Federation board for the past 11 years? How do you balance that with the assumption that you represent the status quo or the establishment while also trying to present yourself as a candidate for a change? Right, Grant. So that, that obviously, at the end of the day, that encapsulates the challenge I've got is to convince um, 
uh, our members that I do represent change. And, and for that, um, I would again remind you that I came in in 2007 as an independent director. It's very important to understand what that means. You have to be an outsider to be an independent director. You can't be independent if you're an insider. So to say I'm an insider is factually wrong. I came in without any pre, pre, prior tie to a state association, youth or adult. I wasn't a former national athlete. I wasn't part of that council. I've never been associated with a club or a league. I came in truly as an independent director to provide impartial advice at the highest levels of U.S. soccer. Now, if you can imagine showing up to class for eight days out of the year, you know, it's, it, it takes you a while to figure out how things go, and that's kind of how the board was run. You have four meetings, two days a meeting, eight days, eight days out of 365, you tell me how, how, how far you can go. So I, I took it upon myself. I volunteered for more. I didn't have to become treasurer. I didn't have to take on the budget committee. I, I chaired our pro league task force. I volunteered for all of this. I got involved with, uh, as you know, for our 2010 bid that we lost to Qatar. But through all of those experiences, it, 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 came, it dawned on me that the organization hadn't really changed since the 1990s. I mean, yes, financially it had grown. When I came in, the budget was about $30 million in annual, uh, per annum. Next week, you're going to see a budget of 110. So that's three to four times as large as it was 10 years ago. Obviously, something is going right. You know, we, we are putting money to work, and there, there's plenty of evidence. You know, uh, we, can, we can agree to disagree on some of the programming, but there's plenty of evidence of, of progress and success. The Federation's had a lot of success. But structurally, and from a governance standpoint, it hadn't evolved. It was still a relatively... I would say um, parochial is not the right word, but it was still a small, you know, uh, federation uh, run without an audit committee. We only had our first audit committee. We, we brought it in last February at the last AGM. So but these are things that, that, that are screaming out to us. And basically, I, I sitting there as an independent director felt uncomfortable with the, with the degree of progress. And that's why I ran for vice president three years ago. And I became vice president two years ago principally, not exclusively, on a platform of reform. And since then, you know, we brought a consultant in. And that consultant, high, a high-end consultant, came and said, you know, you're lacking from a housekeeping standpoint. You, got, you, have, to, you have to upgrade the governance, which is these committees I just was talking about. And by putting committees in place, you've got to populate the committees with the right level and quality of directors so you can get the most out of those committees to provide the oversight of the people in Chicago and so on. And so finally, in the last two years, you're beginning to see that happen. And I like, personally, I take credit for a lot of that. And you talk to my fellow board members and you can ask them individually. So that's all happened in the last two years when I was an insider, when I was vice president. So I, I take that grant collectively, that 10 years of very valuable experience. I've seen the organization um, as an outsider, I've seen a change now that I'm an insider. But look, we have a lot more to do. We can aim higher. We absolutely can do better. And that's why I've asked for, I'd like to see a, a, a couple more committees, frankly, to complete, to complete the governance. I'd like to see a, a board committee that will be chaired by one of our independent directors who would have oversight for all our marketing and commercial activities. A lot of the discussion in this campaign has been about potential conflicts of interest, and I'm not making a commentary about any of the parties involved, uh, but the fact is, with that kind of independent oversight that that committee would bring, 
I would sleep a lot better if I was president knowing that, that uh, our executives in Chicago and, and the folks at, the, at, at some, you know, were acting responsibly and in our best interest. My only responsibility as president is to ensure that everything I do is in U.S. soccer's best interest. So that's one committee. And I've also talked about another committee that will basically be chaired by one of our athlete council uh, members, and that will be a committee to provide oversight for the, for, the, for, the, for the new technical department and the new general manager. So there is a definite connection between the board and management or our staff in Chicago on that side. So, you know, I, I, take, I take responsibility um, for everything I've done as vice president, but only in the last two years, you know. And, and, and as vice president, you have a relatively limited, uh, you know, you, you don't really have much of a platform, but I, 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 think, I think we've done a lot, but there's a lot more to do, and that's why I'm, I'm running for president. You did mention Soccer United Marketing, and I was going to ask you directly about that. It's one of the big topics in this campaign. Uh, Soccer United Marketing is a for-profit company owned by MLS owners. It has a lucrative relationship with U.S. Soccer, a nonprofit. Are you concerned about conflicts of interest between Soccer United Marketing and U.S. Soccer? Well, look, I mean, uh, it, it is a... It is a um, relationship that dates back many, many years. I mean, I, I think probably 15, 15 years or so. Um, so obviously predates myself and most everyone on the board. Um, it, it, it was, uh, as you know, it's a company that is um, um, owned by Major League Soccer. And, and I, I would have to say that when you look back, you know, they have contributed significantly to, um, you know, the, the financial base of the Federation. So I think, I think uh, looking back, uh, um, it, 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 has been, it has been a good, um, a good relationship, and, and I, that, that to me is not the issue. The issue is more looking forward prospectively, particularly in the age we're living in, where, where these conflicts are so magnified um, and, 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 and uh, by, by, look, by definition, Grant, any member-based organization is going to have to deal through conflicts. We have youth uh, leadership uh, on our board. We have adult leadership. We, we have uh, uh, people from the professional council. And, and so at the end of the day, conflicts have to be managed. And they're managed by, you know, uh, uh, thinking through the issues uh, carefully. People get recused, as, as has the commissioner in this particular case. He's been recused in the past, and he'd be recused going forward. But I think we can always do better, and that's where I go back to the committee. By having a board committee with an independent chair, you know, I think we can assure ourselves that whatever happens in the future, uh, it, will be, it will be totally transparent. And, and we will have to, in the next couple of years, begin that negotiation, because those contracts that were signed in 2014 will expire in 22. And, and as we get close to that date, we will have to go. We'll have to sit down and negotiate across a variety of issues: corporate sponsors, broadcasters, marketing, TV, and so on. And I think all of that has to be done in, in as transparent a way as possible. And, and I think we can manage that. We're starting to wind up here. I appreciate you taking this much time. Got a few more questions here for you. Um, one of them would be a pretty straightforward one, uh, and that is. If you do not win this election, will you stay in your role as vice president of U.S. Soccer? Well, my my, my term actually doesn't expire till till the year 2020. So um, I, I would be the one candidate if I didn't win 
where I would continue on as vice president, you know, to to the end of my term. I, I can't commit beyond that term, uh, or whether I will run again. But that that obviously depends on the circumstances then and and how things are going. But I, I intend to uh, to complete my term. Yes. Okay. And another question, and this has gotten kind of this campaign to be a little nasty at times, especially on on the internet. Um, and I just sort of wanted to give you the chance to clarify something. One of the things that's been put out there about you is that Chuck Blazer, the disgraced former uh, FIFA executive, is he's the guy that uh, you were his personal banker, and that's how you got connected to U.S. soccer. Uh, and I don't think that is accurate, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to address that. Yeah, well, thank you, Grant, for asking that question. I mean, yes, I have been beneficiary or otherwise <laughs> subject of some of these anonymous videos and the one you're referring to, you know, that played heavily uh, during the uh, convention in Philadelphia. But look, I mean, the, the, I, of course I knew Chuck Laser, ev- anyone and everyone uh, that matters in U.S. soccer, you know, knew Chuck Laser. He was our man, the American at FIFA House. Uh, and a long time ago, long before I got involved, he was vice president of the Federation. He had the seat I occupied. So most anyone and everyone who's, who's been involved with the sport w- would have met Chuck in one form or another. I actually met Chuck, funny enough, we, we were both volunteers for New York City's Olympic bid back in the early 2003, 4, 5 period. Huh. Uh, when, when I volunteered, I was on that board. Chuck was in that board. And I think a few others. I, I don't remember whether maybe Garber was on it, maybe Sunil. Basically, anyone that had anything to do with New York, from the Cardinal to, uh, you know, DeVol Simon and a bunch of other luminaries were on that board. And that's how I met Chuck initially. Uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I was two or three years later uh, invited by, by Sunil. Um, to become uh, soccer's first independent director. But the suggestion that I was some close personal friend of his, in fact, I was living in Asia in those years, uh, or that I was his private banker, I think, I think confuses what I did at Goldman Sachs. My, my, my role at Goldman Sachs, I ran some very large businesses that, that had as, as clients, you know, governments, major corporations around the world. Uh, I wasn't involved in private banking uh, in the slightest. So I think it was a bit unfair uh, whomever put that video together to suggest uh, what, what, what they did. Um, An important topic uh, additionally, obviously, is the role of women in U.S. soccer and women's soccer itself, things like the NWSL, which the U.S. Soccer Federation has helped to subsidize and try and create stability with in recent years. Uh, I guess to start, I would ask you on that topic, what are you going to do to increase the representation of women in leadership positions in U.S. soccer? Because it's obvious that it's very male-dominated at this point. Right. And so, you know, uh, if you look at my platform, uh, I I think I'm the only candidate that actually talked about uh, one of the things I would do is was uh, when I talked about those directors who report to Dan Flynn, I, I would add a director for diversity and inclusion. And I think, I think short of that, um, we're not going to fix the problem. We, we need someone who would come in on day one and, for example, conduct a compensation review of all staff. I'm talking about at Soccer House, not the athletes at this point. So I, I, I think it goes without saying we, we have to be much more sensitive to uh, more than we have been in the past. Let me put it that way. And I think having a director who's charged or is responsible for promoting diversity and inclusion, I, I think, is the first step forward. 
Um, and, and of course, it's not just equal pay for the players. This, this, this is, this is, this goes to, um, it goes to all sorts of issues. I mean, even at the national team level, you know, we have what we call extended national teams, Paralympians, beach athletes, deaf soccer. We have other sports, power soccer, whom we haven't consistently funded, uh, at the highest levels for their respective sports. So I think, I think as a federation, we've done well, but I think we can do much, much better. Coming specifically to the NWSL issue, you, you would know that U.S. soccer has, since its inception five years ago, um, uh, put significant amounts of investment into the league. I mean, I'm talking about in the order of 15 to $20 million cumulative to date. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that was an accidental. That was by design. That was by strategy. And, you know, I give credit to Sunil and, and the board over all these years to have taken that leadership role because we have always felt that our women deserve a world-class league. They're world-class, they're world champions between the Olympics and, 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 and the World Cup. They need a stable base to play and train and, 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 and make careers out of it like our men do all over the world. And so we, we have been at, at the forefront of, of, of supporting that league. But like any young organization, you know, it, nothing grows in a straight line. You have bumps along the way. And, and I think that's kind of what we're experiencing today. I mean, obviously, what happened in Boston uh, last week was heartbreaking, heartbreaking for the players, for the, for, for the staff, for the community. You know, it, it had been around a long, long time, and no one wanted that to happen. But at the end of the day, we need a collection of owners who are, who are going to want to be part of that league and have a longer-term commitment. It's not a question of just deep pockets. You have to have a deep interest in the sport and promoting women's soccer. And I, I think we are on our way. There are a couple, there are a couple parties who are now looking at uh, coming in in 2019. So I, I think, look, you look, look, at, look at the history of Major League Soccer. MLS has hardly you know, grown you know, at, a, at, a, at a clip every year. Today, you have an overabundance of potential owners queuing up for, uh, for franchise. That wasn't the case even five years ago. So a lot has evolved. MLS is now a, a great, successful, productive you know, employs a lot of people very successfully, and you can see MLS games around the world. But that wasn't the case 15 years ago. And, and, and so I'd like to think that NWSL will flourish in time. And we have to be patient. As president of U.S. Soccer, I would continue to support the commitments that uh, Sunil and the board have, have committed to already. Uh, I do believe that at some point in the near future, the league will need its own commissioner. It doesn't have a commissioner yet. It needs its own, its own office. It needs to brand itself. It needs a culture of its own. Much like if you walk into MLS offices on Fifth Avenue, you have a sense for what they are just by walking those hallways, you know, and you see the trophies and the photographs. Well, NWSL doesn't have that yet. So I think, I think that's, that's what I, I, would, I would continue to support the league as Sunil has done and the board. But I, I think uh, creating an independent league longer term is what it needs to survive. And, and putting a strong commissioner in place, I think, is, is probably the first thing I would do. Carlos, I can't let you get off the podcast without asking about promotion and relegation in U.S. soccer. What's your stance on it? Brad, <laughs> regrettably, I, I cannot. Uh, that's one, one question that's out of bounds. You know, we, we have issues before the courts and, and so on, and I, I, I am not at liberty to, um, to, to uh, uh, really address any of that. Okay, so that's the NASL case against U.S. soccer that's still <laughs> active. Yeah, yeah. Look, 
Correct. I appreciate that. As vice president, I'm an officer of the Federation. You know, I, I, I am not at any liberty to talk about that, and, and I apologize. Gotcha on that one. And I guess finally, I would just say as a parting shot, what do you want to say to voters in this election and U.S. soccer fans? Well, look, I, I firstly, I, I think we have on the fan side, we, we're going to welcome on Saturday for the first time ever, we're going to welcome the fan council. Do you know that this is the only federation of 211 around the world that actually has brought fans into their governing body? Huh. I think that's an awesome thing. And, and I'm so proud to be part of a, a, uh, the board of my time that, that, that we, we made that decision a year ago. And, and so we're very excited to be welcoming five council members and two who will exercise their votes um, as, uh, alongside every other council. So that's terrific. Um, Look, I think one of the things soccer has done exceptionally well over the last, I mean, U.S. soccer has done exceptionally well over the last decade is, is serving our fans. I mean, we have fans that are second to none. And I, I think part of the outpouring of grief, you know, and then anger in October that followed the loss in Trinidad was just the, it was the passion, you know, that, that, that our fans for the game, but specifically for our men's and our women's team. And so I, I empathize with that. And, I, and you know, we all, we all have felt miserable for the last few months. Um, but I, I, think, I think that fan base is energized. And, and because of them, I think going forward will be even stronger. And, and, and I think a lot of the, the, this campaign has been addressing issues that, are, that have been important to them. And so I, I think, I think and, and the direction of the sport and so on. So I, I would say to them, thank you very much. And, and we welcome you. Uh, to our membership, I, I would just say, uh, in conclusion, that you know I, I'm running because I, I, and I, I for, for president because I think I have uh, the experience. I, I think I bring a tremendous amount of independence. Um, I have vision for where I think um, where the sport overall needs to be, but I think where the federation needs to take that leadership role to get the sport to its preeminent level. And look, I have a very detailed plan, and, and, and I'll go back. The most important thing on February 11th is that we all come together, uh, that, that uh, we stop the, the fighting, but we're together for one cause, and that's to win the World Cup, uh, the rights to host, co-host the World Cup at 26. And that's, that's, uh, that, that will be my mission, win or lose for that matter, but hopefully if I win, take the leadership role uh, in that bid. Well, Carlos Cordero, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, Grant, and I'll look forward to seeing you in, um, in Orlando. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Carlos Cordero as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it wherever you get your podcast. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the new 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available for free now on SI.com. Recent guests include Don Garber, Ali Wagner, Rob Stone, and Chris Ahrens. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? the number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. 
Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.